Amen. Have a seat. We'll move it to our teaching time, and then we'll move to the Lord's table. And we are in the middle of a financial challenge called Forward Together that really just has about one more week left to it. So it's been very exciting around here. Lots of activity, um, spiritual, and uh, going over all the various initiatives and so forth that are going on. Thanks, Chris. So, but we turn our attention to something here that I need to feel the, I feel the need to clarify. And it has a lot to do, since we're in the middle of a financial challenge, to try and clarify our identity. So if you're here for the first time, you've kind of came on a good day because you at least will learn a little bit about us, at least from my perspective. So we begin with Jesus' most famous Sermon on the Mount there in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And I'm reading out of the New Revised Standard Version, so um, I always think it's important for you guys to bring it up on your phone or if you brought your, your hard copy Bible. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5. Um, so here we go. And let's see, I think I'm starting on verse 17. Do not think, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, Jesus says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teachings other, teach, teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus, if you know anything about the Bible, the Gospels, he's all over the Pharisees. The Pharisees are his, his nemesis. They're his enemy. Notice, though, however, if you read the rest of the New Testament, Paul really doesn't go after the Pharisees, maybe because he was one at one point. But they don't appear to be his enemy. But for Jesus, the Pharisees are his enemy. Over three years, recorded in the Gospels, if you put them all together, uh, over three years, Jesus fights with the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees who see Jesus then as a threat. The Pharisees persuade Pontius Pilate then to crucify Jesus. They get their payback. For I tell you, Jesus says, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Strange thing is, is that the Pharisees were extremely moral and righteous. Nobody, I, I can say this easily, nobody in the room comes close, <laughs> including myself, of course. They were extremely moral, extremely righteous when it comes to keeping the law of Moses, the Torah, as we find it back in Leviticus and Numbers and the rest of the Old Testament. By the 3rd century A.D., so I realize this is 33 A.D., by the 3rd century A.D., the Pharisees had taken the law of Moses from the Old Testament, the original Ten Commandments, and then the Levitical law. They'd taken that and expanded it into 12 volumes called the Jerusalem Talmud. 12 volumes, but that's not where they stopped. The Jerusalem Talmud... Um, and then, let's see, then the, the Bethlehem Talmud then becomes 60 volumes, 60 volumes in English 
is what it is today. The Talmud contained the Mishnah, this excruciating prescriptions for how to keep the law that the Pharisees had developed. For instance, just for Sabbath alone, just the Sabbath, the rules were such as you could move a new lamp on the Sabbath, but not an old lamp. You could cover hot food to keep it warm, which you, of course, had to make before the Sabbath began. You could cover hot food to keep it warm with a cloth, with feathers, or dried flax, but not cover the food with a damp herbs or straw, which could cause fresh heat and thus work on the Sabbath day. Nothing to sneeze at. Your donkey could wear a saddle cloth as long as it was placed there on the donkey before the Sabbath, right? But the donkey could not wear a bell even if it were muted around its neck because that would mean your donkey is working on the Sabbath. And just to go there, you could cover the udders of your goat to keep them dry but not if the cloth was intended to collect the milk. And yet, Jesus declares that your righteousness has to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And then Jesus goes on to preach exactly what this new level of righteousness looks like. And if you think the Pharisees had a strict compliance, wait till you hear this. Jesus declares that you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And it says, if you call someone an idiot or a fool or stupid or any other conjugation of that, you've committed murder. You stare at a woman a little too long, you've committed adultery. You swear and make an oath, it's evil. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If your brother or sister has something against you, then leave your sacrifice at the altar and go find them and reconcile. You can't go to church unless you reconcile with everybody. Just settle your debts even if you're getting cheated. Divorce, revenge, swearing, even love have all new extreme levels of righteousness for Jesus. If someone forces you to carry their load, probably speaking about Roman soldiers, if someone forces you to carry their load for one mile, then you carry it for two. Go the extra mile. Give to every beggar, every beggar, everybody at the top of the freeway ramp, every beggar, every beggar, give to every one of them. The law of Moses said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then he says this, and this is his working paradigm. This is what makes it work for Jesus. This is why he can say this stuff. He says this, because, because God the Father causes the Son to rise on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you get it? While the Pharisees were worried about donkeys working on the Sabbath, Jesus was worried about the condition of a person's heart. 
Now, who's Lakeland? <laughs> who's Lakeland? I, I don't think anyone within, you know, anyone, anywhere, is going to accuse Lakeland of being Pharisaic or being that righteous. We're not very moralistic. Let's just call it what it is. We're not, yeah, thanks, Chris. I have a cold. You guys figure that out. Um, I don't think anybody's going to accuse us of being, like, super moralistic. Um, we could even be a little too lax. I don't think we're going to make any of Jesus' rules. I don't think we're going to make any of the Pharisees' rules. We could be a little unseemly around Lakeland. And just, just to say it, our DNA marker number one is we're a little trashy. We're just a little trashy around here. We're not too proud of it, but for some reason we can't get over it. Several years ago, someone from outside of Lakeland made this accusation about us. Lakeland? Oh, they'll let anybody into that church. And they did not mean it in a polite way. We're the church that lets in anyone. After all, God causes the sun to rise on the rich and the poor, the white, the black, the brown, the gay, the straight, public school, private school, college degree, no college degree, Porsches and Hondas, guns, no guns, liberal, conservative. Yeah, we are the mutt church. We're a mutt, not purebred around here much at all, thrown together. Don't be too proud of this, folks. We think about the heart more than the law and the rules. Yeah, they'll let anybody in there. I never started a church for goody two-shoes. We're a little trashy. Because that's just what people are. And you start slicing and dicing and squeezing people out, and it just gets tighter and tighter. Years ago, I thought, okay, we're way too lax around here. I've got to tighten this thing up. This is years and years ago. And so I tried to make it some more compliant to real church rules, you know. I was on a kick. And a man was doing cocaine, and he was ruining his life and his career and his marriage. And so I was trying to walk alongside with him, and we were meeting and stuff. And I decided I was just going to apply the traditional rule, uh, you know, that said if he didn't stop doing the drugs, then he couldn't take communion, the Lord's table. And he said, uh, huh. That's just the one thing I needed. But I stuck to my rule, and it didn't go well. Life's trashy. I suppose the church has to flex. It's got to be flexible. If it's too rigid, it breaks. Too many rules, and people start hiding, right? We all know what kind of churches we're talking about here. You get too uptight. Everyone starts hiding what they're really doing, right? I mean, if you outlaw telephones, pretty soon you're hiding a telephone somewhere. A pressure cooker eventually explodes. It's all locked down, right? I mean, one that goes on too long. But a lidless stockpot, it splatters all over the stovetop. It's messy. But it doesn't explode. It doesn't explode. Choose explosion or messy. You just get one or the other. You're like, why not simmer? Because people don't simmer. <laughs> of course, this openness could go too far. <laughs> when we were moving into this place 20 years ago, 
and put this coffee bar in out there, you know, the contractors would put it in. We'd all kind of started having church here for a week or two, and guys were out there one time where everybody's looking at the coffee bar, right? It's gone now, right? And uh, the coffee bar, everybody's looking at it, and they're like, man, these guys were standing around. They're like, man, it looks like a bar in here. Everybody's laughing, you know, yeah, maybe we should get a beer tap. Yeah, everybody starts laughing. Laughter kind of dies down. Silent moment. Could we? <laughs> DNA marker number two. We're a little complicated. We're a little complicated. See if this is true or not for you. Life is a journey, not a destination. Life is a journey, not a destination. True, not true. I never really bought into any simple theology. I never bought into any slick answers to life. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins upon the cross. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely true. True, very true. But that's not the whole gospel. When you're standing up, when, when, you, when you're standing up all night because your teenager hasn't come home, way, 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 way past curfew or whatever you set up. Jesus' atoning sacrifice is not the first thing you come to mind, although you might feel like crucifying somebody. Now, perhaps what really comes to mind when you've been up all night waiting for your teenager to come home is the picture of a father waiting, looking, worrying, wondering, where's his prodigal son? Where's his prodigal daughter? Where have they gone off to? You're worried sick. And when the son comes dragging through the grate, what does the father do? Scold him for not keeping Torah? No. Father runs and embraces him. The father calls for a feast. Because as John, Gospel of John chapter 15 verse 24 says, For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Life's messy. We're a little complicated. This is technically called the reconciliation model of atonement. There's eight or nine or ten different models of atonement, not just one. This one's called reconciliation, and it fits Lakeland. It always has. I used to teach substitutionary atonement around here, and it kind of was met with a few yawns. I start doing reconciliation until the prodigal son, man. That's me. That's me. Everyone that's on the planet needs to be reconciled to God. Like former uh, USC Dean of Philosophy Dallas Willard phrased it, the gospel is not about sin management, Willard wrote. And he writes this. He says this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Great book, by the way. He says, Willard says, we see that the only thing made essential on the right wing of theology is forgiveness of the individual's sins. On the left is the removal of social or structural evils. The current gospel then becomes a gospel of sin management. Digest it for a moment. He writes thickly. For the right, it's just getting rid of your sin, your sin problem. And on the left, it's getting rid of the world's sin problems. And everything gets just reduced down to a gospel of managing your sins. I changed out my job years ago. I asked Garrett to take on the majority of the Sunday teaching and then take over the church's resources, you know, the facilities and the budget and the staff. 
So I could spend my time leading contemplative retreats. Contemplation's all about intimacy with God. And I figured if I can get people into a deep abiding relationship with God, the rest will take care of itself. If we're too complicated, then it's my fault. Mia culpa. Life is a journey, and God is a relationship, not a transaction. Things don't always turn out the way we want. Life is complicated, and you and I better have a bigger God. After all, the God you imagine right now will never change you. Only a God that you cannot imagine will change your life. Because that's God. Only the unexplainable God will transcend our problems and our pains and our questions and our difficulties. The older I get, the more mysterious God becomes. And over the years, I've noticed that retreatants, contemplative retreatants, gain at least two features in their lives, at least two, and one is they become more and more quiet. They just don't open their mouth as much. They ponder more. And two, they develop a smirk, a divine smirk, as I call it, a smirk about themselves, the smirk that says throughout the day, so, convinced you got to win the argument, huh? Nice. And the smirk that says, so, you think you're the most important person in the room right now, huh? The smirk is this ability to sort of uh, become careless about oneself. The technical term for it is apathia, and it's a, it's a self-forgettingness that says, I'm not the center of the universe. Die to self. Jesus increase, me decrease. Apathia. If it's too complicated around here, then I make no apologies because life's complicated and you better have a complicated faith. It just goes that way. You stick to some sort of simple, simple little, little belief and it's not going to fit life. You know, there's also a reason for all this and that's because culture has moved, if you haven't noticed. It's officially secular. And I'm not judging it one way or the other. I can maybe judge the church, but it's not really, it's not even the church's fault, really. Everyone has become authentic and special. That is the operating paradigm we have in life these days. This is secular, secularism. Where it's, and, and on the other hand of it is this notion that everyone has to be super-duper authentic to their own self. We all have, we have to become super, super special. Modern philosopher Charles Taylor says that we are in the age of the authentic self. And in ages past, Europe lived in an enchanted world. Europe lived in an enchanted world. And we live in a disenchanted world, a completely secular, mundane world. Christians uh, built ornate, elaborate cathedrals like this one in Milan, you know, so, I mean, if you go to the detail on it, like, who put the statue way up there? And all of this was like, 
like holy smoke. It was like offering up to heaven and, and humanity, especially Europeans, were trying to reach the heavens. And they create these beautiful cathedrals, spectacular cathedrals, trying to say, isn't God great? And by the way, we, we people, we actually made the cathedral, so we're pretty cool too. And so they were trying to aspire. We even call them spires. But that's not in these days. We're done with that. You walk through there and it's a bunch of tourists snapping pictures and talking out loud. There's no holy sacred space. Oh, you want a holy sacred space these days? Well, here's the next picture. Here's the next one. In the past 150 years, we moved from religious beauty to nature mysticism. When we think of God or anything transcendent, we think of mountains and trees and rivers and glaciers. This is the new cathedral. Notice, rising up. We've traded one spire for another spire. But this one's natural. And therefore, it's earthy. And it's us. And it's more authentic than a European cathedral. You guys relate to this? We do it around here all the time. We do nature backgrounds all the time. Why? Because it speaks to us louder than showing stained glass. Or statues of saints. Where's God? Where's God? In the words of postmodern writer a while back, he said, he said this. He wrote this. He says, do you want to know my secret? Here's my secret. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Now I'm not sure anybody even misses God. Still, still it's there. Still, despite all the voices that say otherwise, the why of the universe still is an echo. And it calls us. And if we choose to call it God, then so be it. Because God's our only response. It's complicated. Therefore, we need a mysterious God. We need a mysterious God. If God can't be explained, then there's the God beyond us. As the old theology, uh, the old theologian said many years ago, in the future, a Christian will be a mystic or there'll be nothing at all. That was written in the early 60s. I call us to be mystics. As evangelism, I call us to be mystics. Christians got to be mystics these days. Otherwise, they're not, no one can relate to us. We light candles around Lakeland. We say written prayers together around Lakeland. We borrow and beg liturgies from Anglicans and Celtics. I wear a stole. That's the funny colored thing. I wear a stole during the Lord's table. Not to make me special, but to tell you that you are special and that you're treading on holy ground. You're encountering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You're taking it into your life. You're going to go out of here as salt and light to the earth. You're more holy than you can ever imagine. Because you've encountered Jesus. We celebrate Ash Wednesday with real ashes from last Palm Sunday. I don't know what my neighbors think when I'm out there burning them down to ash because it smells exactly like pot. 
We cross ourselves like a bunch of Orthodox and Catholics around here, not because we're like trying to be, you know, Orthodox or Catholic, because who cares about that, I guess, but we're just trying to mark ourselves with the cross. We realize that's a good idea. That is the mark. I am marked with the cross. That's, that's my sign, man. That's my tag. Tag me with that. That's what I belong to. I'm good. I don't care who invented it. It's a good idea. We borrow. We beg. We're a mutt church. A little of this, a little of that. What do you want, Lakeland? What do you want? What do you want? A church that's another TED Talk, another self-help session, a buzzy feel-good thing? You can go anywhere online and find that. You don't need to come to church. What churches has to offer, then, is mystery. An encounter with the unimaginable, unknown God. Whether we know it or not, that's what we came here for today. Something beyond ourselves that makes sense of it all. You don't want a simple church. You don't want a simple faith. You want a complicated God. You want a complicated faith. It's the only one that will get you through. Because God's that way. He's unknown. Our last DNA marker this morning. I only have time for this. These three. Our last DNA marker is that we're a lot of generous. We might be a little trashy, and we might be a little complicated, but we're a lot of generous around here. We're a generous church, and our generosity says that we put our money where our mouth is. Feed the poor, we feed the poor. Clothe the unclothed, we clothe them. House the homeless, we do it. We just do it. Say the word, Jesus, we do it. We fight against our own good intentions that, you know, someday we'll do something about this individually. Because when we come together, when we do it as one, we're inspired to move beyond ourselves, and we do something. We do something bigger than any, than any single one of us could ever muster. Millions and millions of dollars over the years this church has put out. Christians, we will never meet people, not even Christian, some of them Muslim. People in China, people we will never meet, we benefit. We bless with just something as simple as dollars, which is one of our hugest leverage tools for the kind of church we are. This is what we can do about rescuing people who are in trouble. This is what we can do about being slightly trashy, complicated, mystical, holy places for people who... Who, whose lives have become pointless and mundane. We invest in others. And when we stand before God Almighty, and if we're ever asked, hey, hey, what did you do with the one life I loaned you? What did you do with the one life I gave you, that one lifetime I gave you? What did you do? And you and I may have the privilege of answering, I gave it away. I gave the whole thing away. For somebody else, for the least of these. Jesus, right before he did the whole thing there about the Pharisees, right there in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, he says this You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You're the light of the world, Jesus says. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that you may see your good, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Salt and light. That's what we go out to do. That's why we're doing four together. That's why we put all this effort and energy into the whole thing. Just so together we can move our culture forward. Move the cause of Christ forward. It's a simple thing to do. But it's expensive. And we're willing to pay that price. We might be a little trashy. We might be a little complicated. But we're a whole lot of generous. And we're going to do it again. If we all jump in on the thing. Amen.